we've been in this series now for four weeks, and we've been looking at what it means to have a meaningful life. And philosophers will tell us that to be human is somewhat of an odd thing, because to be human means we have the ability to ask why. We look at the world around us and we try to make sense of it. We know that things may not perhaps be right, so it's like, okay, then what is really going on? Philosophers will also tell us that we begin to develop what is called a worldview. A worldview is the lens in which we view the world in an attempt to try to make sense of our surrounding. Now, for a worldview to be effective, for it to actually work and have meaning in our lives, it has to answer some very basic questions. One of those questions is what we've been dealing with in this series, and that's the question of meaning and purpose. This morning, it's my hope, it's my prayer that by the end of this, we will see that many of the other worldviews fall desperately short. You see, of the probably thousands of worldviews in existence today, um, none of them can actually make a cohesive set of beliefs that answers all of life's biggest questions satisfactorily. Some may answer some of the questions, but what we see is in their answers, they cause a contradiction with the answers to other questions. That's with everything except Christianity. That's with everything except Christ. So what I hope to do this morning is to show that it's only in Christ that we can find true meaning, that we can find a meaningful life. Now it's interesting, as we look at this topic, that we're looking at the words of King Solomon. Now let's remember who Solomon was. He was prettier than you. He was wealthier than you. He had more influence than you. He had more power than you. He was a man who should have truly been content with the stage he found, with the lot he found himself uh, dealt in life. Not only were he these things, but he was also the son of Bathsheba and King David. He was heir to the throne of Israel. He would one day become king and ruler of God's people. So with Solomon, we see a man who had um, an, an important position. In fact, to the Jewish people, he had one of the most important um, positions that there was to have. Not only that, if that wasn't enough, he was given a task by God. His father David was not allowed to build um, the temple because God said that David's hands were too bloody. He had been a warrior his whole life. So God reserved this task for Solomon. So Solomon was a man uh, with an important position. He was a man also with an important task. These things should have been enough for anyone to have found their meaning, their rest, and their purpose in God. But what we notice with Solomon is at some point, he walks away. He begins to look at other ways. His meaning and his purpose changes from God to the temporary things that he finds on earth. And in chapter 7, we're going to notice that his thought transitions a little bit. But in the previous six chapters... We have to understand he's walked through these things that he thought he was going to find meaning in only to say that he was chasing the wind. It was worthless and it was a waste of time. According to Blaise Pascal, 
the Christian religion teaches two truths. That there is a God whom men are capable of knowing and that there is an element of corruption in men that renders them unworthy of God. Knowledge of God without knowledge of man's wretchedness begets pride. And knowledge of man's wretchedness without knowledge of God begets despair. But knowledge of Jesus Christ furnishes man knowledge of both simultaneously. What Pascal uh, has recognized, or what he's talking about, is the reality that since Genesis chapter 3, since the fall of humanity, we have struggled with, among other things, finding purpose and meaning. You see, to us, reality is a heap of broken images, images that, uh, of that which was once perfect. We can see the imprint of our Creator all around us, yet we hold on to these broken images, and we seek to put them back together ourselves. We know that there's something more. We see that the world is not what it ought to be, yet we cannot seem to make sense of the brokenness around us. We cannot put the puzzle back together, but we do know for certain that it is in disarray. We know that somewhere in the brokenness, there is something behind it all that is the source of our meaning, the source of our purpose, and yet, no matter how hard we try, so often it seems that we cannot find it. So we cling to these broken shards that we find in our lives in hope that they will give us meaning and purpose. We begin to survey our environment to see what things may bring us meaning and purpose. We begin to chase things like relationships. We tell ourselves, if I only can find the right spouse, then my, then my life will have meaning, then it will have purpose. If I only have the right kids, my life will have meaning, and then it'll have purpose. Or we chase careers. We try to climb that ladder to become the most successful whatever it is that, we're, that we uh, spend our time doing. We try to make that the apex of our existence. We say, once I achieve this level or that level of success, then I will know true fulfillment. If I have this title at work, if I have that car, that house, or that number attached to my bank account, then I'll have purpose. Or if I can just get people to like me, if I can gain attention from the right group, um, then my life will have meaning. And then I will have made it. Or perhaps those of us who are not feeling particularly as selfish as, uh, as the rest of us, we may attach our lives to some kind of cause. We will look for something bigger than ourselves and we will invest heavily in social or political activism. And to us then, our goal in life is to set that thing, this thing that we have put all of our hope and trust in, in front of the faces of everyone else. And we try to get them to accept um, what it is that we have given our life to. So it makes sense then, if these are the things that we think we get wis or meaning from, that we think wisdom is found in the pursuit of these things. And these things may not be bad things in and of themselves. Um, but our life becomes tied up in them. Our identity becomes these things, uh, these, these, uh, these shards, these things that we've been holding on to, they will inevitably break. Our idols fall, they collapse, uh, they crumble within our hands, they fall apart, and then we're confronted with the terrifying reality that we have only been chasing the wind. As Solomon said, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, 
all is vanity. It is all worthless. Recognizing the absurdity of finding any kind of ultimate meaning or purpose in this world, atheist philosopher Albert Camus noted, Life is like a man doomed for all eternity to roll a boulder up a hill, only to have it continually roll back down again, over and over and over again. We have that thing that we thought would give us meaning, break and leave us hopeless, only to turn right around and start pushing that boulder that just flattened us back up the hill once more. Sure, we may be jaded because of previous failures, but we still start pushing that boulder up again with great excitement, with gusto. We say, this time, this time I will gain meaning. This time I will get that boulder to the top of the hill just to be flattened again. But this time, this time it'll work. And that's the lie that we tell ourselves. And you see, I think we go after these things because we think that in them we have some level of control. We want desperately for meaning and purpose to be something that we control, something that we have a hold of and something that we can manipulate. We think we have control over these things. And this is the same place that we find King Solomon in. King Solomon knew God, yet at some point he chose to strike out on his own and to make sense of life without God. And like us, he kept rolling that boulder up the hill only to be flattened by it again and again. This lifestyle would ultimately lead him to ask the question at the end of chapter 6. In the few days of our meaningless lives, who knows how our days can best be spent? Solomon was at somewhat of a good place there because he knew that the answer did not lie in money, in power, influence, sex, or in chemical addiction. The previous six chapters spell out well for us the futility of chasing those things in an attempt to gain meaning from them. But he did have the answer, and that's what we're going to look at a little bit this morning. I want to warn you, as we begin to unpack this a little bit, um, we're going into chapter 7, and chapter 7 is really sort of a, a how-to um, live a wise life, how to have a meaningful life. But the things that we're going to read seem rather counterintuitive to us because our minds are so set in the temporary, so set in the here and now, it's hard for us to see beyond what it is that's in our little bubbles. And the things that Solomon's going to talk about uh, kind of shouts to us, that can't actually be the answer. And Solomon recognized that. He even noted at the end of Ecclesiastes 7, he says, God created people to be virtuous, but they have each turned to follow their own downward path. He also said, there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it leads to destruction. He's saying something very hard to us. There's a way that we think is right. <laughs> it ain't right. We can't trust our feelings. We have got to ground our purpose and our meaning in something more than what may feel right. It's got to be grounded in something eternal and something fixed. Um, so he goes through and he begins listing what I call the ways of the wise. And I would encourage you to read all of Ecclesiastes 7 and 8. I'd encourage you to read the whole book. It's a short read. But in the first 14 verses, and we're only going to look at four, in the first 14 verses, he begins to lay out... Um, what wisdom really is, it's, uh, he's really going into more of, 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 of proverbs, of ways that we can gain wisdom. 
And like I said, this morning we're only going to look at the first four verses. And in those four verses, we're only going to look at three principles. And they're this. Behavior modification does not and will never work. Number two, thinking about death is a good thing. And number three, we're going to learn of the power of sorrow. Let's read Ecclesiastes 7. A good reputation is more valuable than costly perfume, and the day you die is better than the day you were born. Better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. After all, everyone dies, so the living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for sadness has a refining influence on us. A wise person thinks a lot about death, while a fool thinks only about having a good time. If you've been reading along in Ecclesiastes, this statement seems to contradict some of Solomon's previous statements to eat, drink, and find satisfaction in one's work, to basically enjoy what God has given us in this life. But we need to remember that Solomon is somewhat of a realist. He sees the very real tensions in life and recognizes that wisdom can come from multiple places. Wisdom can be found in adversity. In fact, it is in adversity that we begin to develop an eternal perspective. The problem is, is that everything within us screams that this will not work. You're asking me to focus on things that I believe are, will, will ultimately fail me. You know, I think Solomon had it right the first time. Sure, I will fail in my pursuits, but the answer has got to be in finances, in careers, in relationships, in these things. That must be where my answer lies. And Solomon had it right the first time, and he's absurd for mentioning the things that he has mentioned here. They cannot work. They will not work. That's the lie that we tell ourselves, and we tell ourselves that because we do desire that control. And what Solomon's going to confront here is the reality that we really don't have that control to begin with. We, like Solomon, seek to remove God from the equation. We turn to our own selfish desires and seek purpose from then. And even if we make God a part of it, you know, we put him at the top of our priorities list, perhaps. If he is not it, if he's not the main thing, we still cannot make sense of this life. I'm not saying that attaching God to your life is a good thing. I'm saying that if you do that and he's just an addition you're really no better off than those who are living apart from him. Now, I love how Solomon begins this. He begins by touching on a topic that I think should receive significant stage time in the church. Solomon begins his how-to list by pointing out something that is so much a part of humanity's struggle and our rebellion against God that it is the trademark doctrine of false religion. Solomon goes on the attack first by exposing the, uh, the worthlessness found in behavior modification. This idea that to gain meaning and purpose, we need to clean ourselves up. This, we find this in religious circles. If we're, gonna, if we're going to please God, we must look a certain way. We must be and do a certain thing. We also see this uh, in secular life. Um, if you want to change your situation, you modify your behavior, and hopefully from that, we will begin to fit in somewhere where we uh, begin to see purpose and meaning in our lives, but it will not work. 
Listen to what Solomon says. A good reputation is more valuable than costly perfume. On the surface, we may quickly pass over the author's intent and what he's trying to say here. But let's think about this for a minute. What is perfume? Why do we use perfume? Perfume is used to cover up our natural stink. We stink, but if we are to be attractive to other people, we have to do something to cover that smell up. This is especially true for those of us currently seeking a spouse because we know that no one lists body odor on their must-have in a potential mate list. It's just kind of gross. So what does Solomon mean when he says that a good reputation or a good name, uh, the Hebrew word used there can be translated either way. It, it means the same thing. But what does he mean when he says that that is better than perfume? See, the problem with perfume is it always has to be reapplied. It never works for any length of time. It only fixes or masks the problem temporarily. However, a reputation is built over time. To the Jews of the day, this idea of a reputation or a name um, is something that was more than just simply a label. You know, in our culture, we name people Jim, Bob, John, something like that because we like the way it sounds. But they didn't do so. You see, to them, it was intended to express an underlying nature. Oftentimes, a child would be given a name, and the parent's hope is that they would eventually um, grow into the characteristics that that name carried with it. It was intended to express an underlying nature. Therefore, a good name or reputation signified inner character. And it is that um, that comes from the inside out rather than the perfume that's talked about that only masks our um, outward stink. Now, we need to understand something. Um, as we're reading Ecclesiastes, we have the awesome blessing to read it through the lens of the New Testament. In the Old Testament, oftentimes things are discussed and talked about that the authors themselves did not really fully grasp. And we run into one of these situations here. You see, we're reading the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament, but as we read it, we notice that Solomon doesn't necessarily seem to come across as though he's talking about anything eternal here. And it's because he may not be. We know that Solomon did not have a very robust theology concerning eternity and the afterlife. So as we read this and we look at it and we're like, ah, it kind of sounds like he's talking about the here and now. It's because he is. But remember, in the Old Testament, oftentimes things were left... Um, um, uncomplete. We don't find the answers out or the true meaning out until we get to the New Testament. But because we do live after the time of the New Testament, it is right for us to view the Old Testament from the lens of the New Testament. And that's what we're going to do this morning as we look at the example of the difference between those who are putting on perfume to mask their natural stink and those who are building a good reputation. Well, if we're going to look at an example of those who are only seeking to mask the outside, I think the classic example that's almost always given is that of the Pharisees. Jesus calls them hypocrites. That term meant, um, it, it was the term used for an actor who would wear a mask. And everyone knew that that mask represented a character, but the one behind the mask was a completely different man. So when Jesus calls them hypocrites... What he's referring to is the fact that they are not as they appear. 
And he goes and uh, exposes the failure of their system to them in Matthew 23. He says this, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, like justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Blind guides, you strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, For you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly you look like righteous people, but inwardly your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Do you see what their perfume is? Do you see what their mask is? We may miss it. We may say it's religion. It's not really religion. Religion is only the vehicle they use to achieve self-derived meaning and purpose. You see, to the Pharisee, meaning and purpose came through what they thought they could do. And even though they may have thought they were doing it from God, it was still a selfish pursuit centered on themselves. And before we too quickly jump on the, those terrible Pharisees' bandwagon like we often do, we need to remember... But this is not here. Jesus did not give us this example for us to point a finger at the Pharisees. He gave us this example for us to evaluate our own lives. You see, whether, our, whether or not our mask is, um, is, is religious activity or if it's career or anything like that, any self-derived or any attempt at self-derived meaning and purpose is us simply applying more perfume. It never covers the stink up. It will still be there, and we must continually work and work hard at reapplying it. It will never have an ultimate effect. So that's the bad way. What's the good way? What is a good reputation? And what does it look like? What does a good name look like? I think the Apostle Paul gives us a good example in a very familiar passage. It's in Galatians 5, 22. It says this, But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the building blocks of our reputation. There is no law against these things. Verse 24, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Do not get hung up on the first few verses where we're getting a list of of good attributes and assume that we can just add those to our lives. That can be... That can be as much a failure uh, as any other um, attempt at putting perfume or, or masking ourselves in other ways. The key is found in verse 24. It says, These things are those, belong to those who belong to Jesus Christ, 
have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and are crucified with or crucified them there. We're seeing a relinquishing of control. It is us giving up our search for meaning and purpose and allowing Christ to take control of our life. Um, Paul goes on and further, uh, further uh, explains this in Philippians 1.6 when he says this, And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. What's the first thing we notice? Who is doing the work? It says, God who began a good work in you. So this should leave us with the question of what is my reputation? Am I seeking to mask the outside? Am I something different on the inside than what I, than what I am on the outside? Have I just applied enough to fool most people most of the time? Or is there an inward character being developed in me through the Holy Spirit's work in my life? Solomon goes on to illustrate this a little better. He says, A good reputation is more valuable than costly perfume, and the day you die is better than the day you were born. As we're reading that, these two statements seem to be kind of oddly paired together. In fact, the first part of verse 1 seems to stick out against the other verses. However, if we caught Solomon's intent with the previous statement, then it all makes sense. Let's think of it this way. Because inner character is more important than outward fragrance, then it is the funeral rather than the birthday party that poses ultimate questions about life that Solomon is trying to press here. So what he's trying to so what he's trying to tell us here, or the way he's trying to get us to think about this, um, is a way to illustrate it. Um, think about uh, um, you're going on a trip. As you're going on a trip, what information do you plug into the GPS? Well, we enter in the final destination. We enter the end in, and we work our way backwards. And what Solomon is saying is that life should not be that much difference. You know, sure, we should celebrate the birthdays. We should celebrate the graduations and the other milestones. But let us not become so focused on them and life in general that we miss the end. What a tragedy it is to get to the end of life only to find that all we have ever done is chased the wind. Another way to think of it Let's think about a tombstone. What do we see on a tombstone? You've got a name that identifies the dude that's in the ground, and there's a birth date and there's a death date. What comes in between those two is nothing more than a little dash. And see, if we're living our lives apart from God, if we die apart from God, that little dash is literally all that we have. However, if we're living with God, that dash actually becomes extremely insignificant because as Paul said our lives do not end our work does not end at that death date it continues on through until the end and then ultimately we find ourselves spending eternity with God himself so live every day with the last day in mind the second thing he looks at is death think about death because it is good for you and this is perhaps something that hits us harder than, uh, than most anything he said so far. He says in Ecclesiastes 7, 2, it is better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. After all, everyone dies, so the living should take it to heart. 
We live in a generation where um, what was once considered taboo 20, 40, 50 years ago, we're told should now be celebrated. We are told uh, that we have stripped off all the chains that hold us back and everything should be celebrated, everything should be practiced, and our meaning can come from these things. But the one thing that I find odd is that while we're trying to make everything less and less taboo, we have created perhaps the greatest taboo of our generation, and that is this. It is death. Death is the great taboo of our generation, which is odd. I mean, stop and think about it. The one thing that we actually all have in common is we're all going to die, and it's the one thing that we seek to avoid talking about um, the most. And I guess that kind of makes sense because if we're focused so much on the 70, 80 years or 20 years or whatever it is that God gives us, if that's our main thing, if that's all we think there really is, then I guess we should fear the end. We should be repulsed at the sight of, uh, or at the sound or the, the mention of death because it, it's, it's forcing us to confront the reality that in the end, um, that's it. So if that's what our life is built upon, is on the temporary and on the here and now, death will be something that never really quite makes sense to us and something that we will continually flee from. But Solomon says, no, think about death. Thinking about death is good. And I think one of the reasons why it is good is that nothing says louder that you are not God quite like death. And see, that's our problem. We... We think we are God. We want to be God. We live as if we are the God of our own lives. But it's that death that we realize <laughs> that ain't happening. That ain't so. That's not true. Um, I don't have control. Not really. Um, I can't be God because I can't control this one thing that if I could control, I definitely would. You see, we're a slave to the delusion that we have control. Nothing points out the falsity of that statement better than the thought of death. And oftentimes as we fail to think about death, sadly we fail to think about life as well. And in our attempt to avoid, um, avoid the inevitable, we just slip day by day closer and closer and closer to ultimate meaninglessness, ultimate destruction. So Solomon says, think about death. It has a way of getting your thoughts and your mind uh, oriented around things that you should be thinking about. He goes on to talk about the power of sorrow. Ecclesiastes 7, 3 and 4. Sorrow is better than laughter, for sadness has a refining influence on us. A wise person thinks a lot about death, while a fool thinks only about having a good time. We live in a society that refuses to mourn. We celebrate our wins publicly, but our losses we deal with in isolation. And due to the growing influence of social media, we are persuaded to put only our best foot forward, to keep our happy mask on lest the world sees that everything is not actually perfect. We want desperately to project the image of health, wealth, and prosperity. Yet Solomon says that sorrow is better than laughter. It is good to be sorrowful. Jesus himself said, blessed are those who mourn. 
In fact, we see mourning as a consistent and constant theme in Scripture. Whether it's the lamentations of the prophet Jeremiah, whether it's Job, or the deep sorrow and grief that we read in some of David's psalms, it's throughout Scripture. And Jesus himself even mourned. He mourned over Jerusalem, and he mourned at the death of Lazarus. You see, sorrow is a good thing. Grief is good. It gives us time to deal with what is really going on rather than masking our problems. Grief gives us the opportunity. Sorrow gives us the opportunity to take the mask off and to be real. The Jews understood this. They, in fact, had a time for public grief, a time for the community to come around those who were sorrowful. It was, um, it, it was public sorrow that invited others into an individual's grief. And what an awesome platform we as Christ followers have uh, in our ability to come and sit and be with those who are grieving. You see, it's in grief that oftentimes friendships are formed. It is in grief that we see communities are often strengthened. And as great as those things are, I think the greatest thing about sorrow is it causes us to seek comfort. When we come to our end, when we understand that we are out of control and uh, we have lost and we have lost significantly, it is then perhaps that we may stop looking at ourselves and look up to our creator for comfort. Solomon goes on, a wise person thinks a lot about death while a fool thinks only about having a good time. Okay, so what's the problem of thinking about having a good time or only thinking about having a good time? I think it's this. I think the danger in thinking that way or in trying to live life that way is that the best way to ignore God is to pursue pleasure or to pursue these good times, which creates a very real problem for us because we, we know that we must stuff. We know um, that we were not created for these selfish desires. When we're pursuing only um, the good times, only selfish desires, we are literally going against the way in which we were designed. And since we are designed in a particular way, like everything, if you keep operating it in the wrong way for long enough, destruction is the only thing that you have to hope for. See, we were not created for these selfish desires. Rather, we were created for communion with a holy God. And no matter how hard we may cling to these things that we think we get meaning and uh, purpose from, anything less than communion with God will always leave us wanting. Now, um, to the Christ follower, this really should not sound very odd. I know it may because there is the reality. I don't want to make it sound like as Christ followers we have it all together. Uh, because there is still this war inside us. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And at the same time, we still have that sin nature. So our, 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 um, our desires oftentimes will still go back to the temporary things, to the things that we can't get meaning and uh, purpose from. But we know the reality. And to us, this all should make perfect sense because stop and think about it. We have put our hope in a murdered Savior. If you are going to invent a religion, a worldview, that is not the way to do it. You do not wrap hope, meaning, and purpose up in the death of someone. Of course, we know that he resurrected, but that's a very poor way to start a movement. Unless, of course, it's true. I said at the beginning that it's... In Christ is the only way that we find meaning, that other 
worldviews fall short. Obviously, I've not even began to really approach that subject in depth this morning, and I, I leave that to you to, to investigate for yourself, but I am certain that as we look, we will find um, contradictions and problems in other worldviews. But in Christ, we see all the loose ends of life tied up together. We see the big questions in life have been answered. Because you see, with Christ, unlike other worldviews, with Christ, we see that God actually deals with our problem himself. Jesus Christ, the second member of the Godhead, of the Trinity, came to earth to fix a problem that we could not fix ourselves. He did not come to give us wise teaching. He did not come to give us a path, a road map, or anything like that. He came to fix what we broke. The innocent dying for the guilty. And it's in him that we find our answers. He even answers some of the things that we brought up this morning. In Jesus, we see that he exposes behavior modification. You cannot clean yourself up enough to be pleasing to God. And it's absurd to think that we can. But with Christ, we see that he confronts that lie. He tells us that we can't do it, but he doesn't leave us there. In fact, he does it for us. In Christ, we see that death is a good thing to think about because we know that death does not have ultimate victory. In Jesus' resurrection, we see death being dealt with. So while other religions and other worldviews are trying to deal with the reality of death, we see in Christ a God who has conquered it. He also deals with sorrow. And while it hurts today, we read in Revelation 21, this God that Christ, our Savior, will ultimately wipe away every tear. There is no hurt on earth that will not be dealt with before we go into eternity. I think Isaiah illustrates well what I've been trying to say, and, and the band can come on up. In Isaiah 53, talking about Christ, he says this, Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence, like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet, it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrow that weighed him down. And he thought his troubles were a punishment. We thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. It is in him that we find our ultimate purpose and our meaning. We can live our lives apart from God. And in doing so, we are doomed to that boulder that Camus talked about that constantly keeps flattening us in our attempt to roll it back up the hill. 
But with Christ, however, we see that that boulder has already been placed permanently on top of the hill. It's fixed. And to the Christ follower, it was not us that put, us, put it there. But it is in Him that we find our ultimate meaning and our ultimate purpose. Anything short of that will always fail us and leave us chasing after no more than the wind. So as we enter into this time of response this morning, we're going to do something that we do every week here at Highland, and we're going to take communion. And it's a time for us to reflect on the, off, on the awesome sacrifice that was paid for us. And there'll be couples around the room, and they'll be holding a plate of bread and a cup of juice, the bread representing the body of Christ that was broken for our sins and the blood that was spilt on our behalf. Nothing magical happens. We do not gain favor from doing this. Nothing changes in the bread or the wine. It's just simply us taking time to remember the awesome sacrifice that was paid for us. It's a time for us to rest in the reality that we have meaning and we have purpose because of Christ and what He has done for us. This morning, if you would like to respond, if you want someone to pray with you, I'll be over here. And as Jason mentioned this morning, we've got this section over here and probably have some guys over here. We welcome um, the opportunity to get to pray with you.